Let the whole earth shout joyfully to God. Sing about the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awe-inspiring are your works. Your enemies will cringe before you because of your, because of your great strength. The whole earth will worship you and sing praise to you. They will sing praise to your name. Come and see the wonders of God. His acts for humanity are awe-inspiring. He turned the sea into dry land and they crossed the river on foot. There we rejoice in him. He rules forever by his might. He keeps his eye on the nations. The rebellious should not exalt themselves. Bless our God, you peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He keeps us alive and does not allow our feet to slip. For you, God, tested us. You refined us as silver is refined. You lured us into a trap. You placed burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us out to abundance. I will enter your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows that my lips promised and my mouth spoke during my distress. I will offer you fattened sheep as burnt offerings. With the fragrant smoke of, of rams, I will sacrifice bulls with goats. Come and listen, all who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth, and praise was on my tongue. If I had been aware of malice in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. However, God has listened. He has paid attention to the sound of my prayer. Blessed be God. He has not turned away my prayer or turned his faithful love from me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hopefully, there we go, this actually works now, so that's good. Have we walked down the street today and you found just an average Australian person and you asked them what it is that they wanted out of life, they will say something um, that means, I just want to be happy. Now, they might actually say that all I want out of life is just to be happy, but most often, happiness will be tied to some something. So they might say something like, oh, you know, I'd love to be rich, because you buy whatever you want. Uh, the money will buy me stuff, and the stuff will make me happy. Or we might say, uh, if they're feeling particularly open and, and vulnerable, I want to be reconciled to my significant other, or my child, or my parent, or some other person with whom I'm in a relationship. For them, restoring the relationship of a, uh, that, that's broken down will, in their view, make them happy. Or they might say, I just want to be free. I want to escape the doldrums of my life and get out of my circumstances. A change will bring happiness. Or, again, you might say, I just want to retire. You know, I'm tired. I, I want to hop off, uh, get out of the rat race. I want to take to the road and just go. Rest is the thing that is tied to their happiness. 
Well, they might say something else again. But in each instance, what the person really wants is for them to be kind of satisfied with life, that life will, their circumstances will make them happy. But what's common in each one of these uh, things is that they are all external sources of joy, of happiness. They're all external things that give them internal happiness. But the problem with this is that this kind of happiness is by its very nature therefore external. It depends on something outside of you that can change. Let's just take money for example. If you want to be happy because you have lots of money, then if you have lots of money, you'll be happy. But what if you lose that money? Then you'll be sad. Your external circumstances determine the level of satisfaction and happiness you have in life. But what if there was a way to get the same kind of internal well-being that happiness brings despite our circumstances? What if there was a way to have an internally uh, secure state of goodness, if you like, that doesn't depend on what happens to you uh, on the outside? Well, there is such a thing, and the Bible calls this thing joy. Now, we have to understand that the Bible, in the Bible, the words joy and happiness are sometimes used interchangeably. So there's, there's obviously an overlap between happiness and joy. So, for example, when the angel comes to the shepherds and says, I bring you tidings of great joy, he intends for them to be happy. Uh, or when Jesus says, I tell you, there's more joy in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous people who have no need for repentance. He clearly means that there is happiness in heaven. And so in some contexts, joy and happiness mean the same thing. But there is a distinction between the spiritual joy that we're going to be talking about today and simple happiness in Scripture. Jesus himself makes this distinction in uh, Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, or falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice, or in other words, have joy, because great is your reward in heaven. Now, when those things happen, Jesus isn't instructing his people to be happy. He's instructing them to have joy. There is a distinction. Spiritual joy is a fruit of the Spirit. There is something uniquely Christian about biblical joy that comes from the Holy Spirit and that lives inside the believer. In Psalm 16, verse 11, uh, the psalmist says something similar. He says to God, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He, he says there is Joy being in God's presence, it is uniquely, uh, uniquely something for a believer to have that kind of joy in God's presence that's not open to a person who does not believe. And so when we're talking about joy today, we're going to be talking about the spiritual joy that, uh, that comes from God, that is, a, that is a uniquely Christian thing. And we're not going to be talking about just being joyful as in being happy. So Having made that distinction, uh, we're going to look at Psalm 66 and how the psalmist there kind of discovers this joy in three different kinds of ways. He says, um, he basically discovers it in three kinds of ways. He says, you can have joy when you see God for who he is. You can have joy in your trouble, so despite your circumstances, 
when you see God's hand in it. And you can have joy when you reflect on God's faithfulness and action in your life. And these are obviously uniquely believerish things. And so let's have a look as we, do, as we think about that together. So firstly, verses 1 to 7. If you've got your Bibles with you, uh, read with me. He says, Let the whole earth shout joyfully to God. Sing, to, sing about the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awe-inspiring are your works. Your enemies will cringe before you because of your great strength. The whole earth will worship you and sing praise to you. They will sing praise to your name. Come and see the wonders of God. His acts of humanity are awe-inspiring. For humanity are awe-inspiring. He turned the sea into dry land and they crossed the river on foot. There we rejoice in him. He rules forever by his might. He keeps his eye on the nations, and the rebellious should not exalt themselves. Now, can you see what the psalmist is, is doing here? He is delighting in God simply for who God is. He's finding joy uh, <coughs> in God that is not dependable on his external circumstances. It's not his own power or his own wealth or his own health or his own relationships that are generating joy within him. His joy comes from an external but unchangeable source, who God is, God himself. When he considers God and his character, it creates within him joy. And it it creates so much joy, in fact, that he, he commands those around him to shout joyfully to God. When, when he considers who God is, this joy bubbles up and over. His, his source of joy is God himself. And when he considers God, he sees these different kinds of things about God that give him joy. The first is he gets joy out of God's awe-inspiring works. For the psalmist, this would have created, uh, included creation, the works of God's hands. It would have included the establishment of Israel as a nation. God's works would have included all the miracles and wonders that God did when he set Israel apart. It would have included God's presence with his people in the tabernacle or the temple. He specifically remembers in verse 6 how God leads Israel through the Red Sea when he delivered them from Egypt. That's what the whole he lets them walk through on dry ground is all about. And he thinks about how they entered the promised land, which is the river that he separates for them to walk through. And he gets great joy when he thinks about how God is in sovereign control and rules over the nations. And in each and every case, when he reflects on who God is, it causes him to want to sing praise to God and to invite others into that joy he has as well. Now notice what the psalmist is not doing. He is not looking at his own life. He is not considering his own circumstances. He is not thinking about his own situation. Instead what he does is he, he lifts his eyes from his own life and looks up to God and when he sees God for who he is in his might and his power and his sovereign control over the world, he has joy. The centre of his being is outside of himself. 
And friends, the reality is that we are no different in our makeup than the psalmist. In fact, we can have joy in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in when we lift our eyes from our, ourselves, from our issues, from the hurts and the pains that we have had in this life and, and lift our eyes up to God and look to God, see him for who he is and reflect and consider on his acts in our life. You see, all the psalmist had here was was kind of a pointer to, towards Jesus. He could only think of how God had acted in the past in saving Israel out of the clutches of Egypt, how he parted the seas to let them walk through. He could only think of when God stopped the flow of the Jordan River to let Israel walk through on dry ground. But we have so much more to think about than the psalmist did here. You and I have so much more to reflect on and to be joyful about than what the psalmist did. We, we can thank God, yes we can, for his awe-inspiring works, for his creation. We can thank him for how he delivered Israel out of Egypt. Yes, we can do that. But we have been saved out of a power much greater than Egypt ever could be. In Jesus Christ, we have been saved from the very sin in our lives, the sin that would have meant that we would die and face eternal wrath and damnation by God. And not only that, we can reflect on the fact that Jesus stood in our place and took that punishment for us. That he opened the door for us, not just to cross over the river into the promised land, but to enter into the promised land that is far greater than the land of Canaan ever was. If you're a believer, you get to have eternal life through Christ. You are separated forever from facing an eternity of suffering under God's wrath for your sin. When we believe in Jesus, we know that we have an eternal life where we get to sit at the table in the feast of heaven when we stand with the great thronging worshippers who will stand around the throne of Jesus himself and give him glory. Those are the mighty works that you and I have to reflect on. And for the believer, that reality can never be stolen away. It's like the Apostle Paul says, neither death nor life nor Angels or principalities, nor the present or the future or any powers, never, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you want to have joy in your life, think about that. Don't be consumed by looking inward at the hurts and the bitterness and the the things that have happened to, your to you in your life. While those things are important, they are not the things that define who you are. You are a child of the King. You have been saved by a Lord who loves you. Does that not give you joy? And the thing about that kind of joy is it is so much more certain, so much more true than the fleeting security that our wealth could give us. 
It is so much more freeing than, than a trip around Australia without having to worry about you know, work or, or money. It is so much more restful than simply quitting your job and stepping into retirement. And it's so much more solid than a restored relationship with a spouse or another person here on earth because those things can change. You see, if your joy is found in what God has already done for you in Christ Jesus, then no one can steal that from you. Your circumstances might still be unhappy, sure, but that doesn't mean that your joy is gone. If you want joy, friends, think about what Jesus has done for you. Remember God and his mighty acts in bringing you through the Red Sea. That's the first thing the psalmist does. You can have joy when you praise God for who he is in his mighty power and sovereign control. But now what if you are actually going through a difficult time right now? What if your circumstances are deeply hurtful? What if you are in one of these painful seasons of life where the things you go through really deeply hurt? What if you are in one of those seasons where trouble comes and just doesn't seem to go away? What do you do then? Well, verses 8 to 12 give us the answer. You can have joy in trouble when you see God's hand in it. So from verse 8. Bless our God, you peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He keeps us alive and does not let our feet slip. For you, O God, tested us. You refined us as silver is refined. You lured us into a trap. You placed burdens on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us out into abundance. Here's the truth. You can live with joy in the middle of trouble because there's actually always something to be thankful for. Pay attention to what the psalmist does here. So he's, he's now moved from praising, sort of telling everyone to praise God because of his mighty acts and mighty power, and he's now moving on to pra- telling people to praise God, to let his sound be, uh, the sound of his praise be heard. Why? Because he keeps us alive. That's pretty good. For him, the fact that he has not died in his trouble is enough to have joy and to praise God. To not let his feet slip is a way of saying he's, he's kind of maintained his, his kind of spiritual integrity in the midst of his trouble. Now when did this happen? When did God keep him alive? When did he, he stay surviving? He's not thriving here, he's just surviving. When does this happen? He says, when God... In our translation, when God lured them, that is Israel probably, into a trap and put burdens on their backs. The Hebrew underneath is a bit tricky, but it means to be kind of pressed down. So that's why we have, he put burdens on their backs. It's like they're being weighed down by the difficult circumstances they are in. 
What else did God do? He allowed people, others, to ride over our heads. He goes through fire and water. These are signs of extreme difficulty. There's kind of a metaphor that says it feels like being burnt up. It feels like drowning. It is a terrible position to be in. He is talking about all the trials they as people have gone through. Now, we don't know for sure what the trial is that he's talking about here. It could be the exile that Israel eventually endured. It could be one of the many times that Israel as a nation got attacked and kind of, um, I guess, punished for their rebellion against God. But regardless, he sees God's hand in the suffering that he is going through. But he does so in a way that is helpful and upbuilding. This is radically different from the way that humans normally handle suffering in the world. What do we normally do? We normally either get consumed by our suffering or we try to avoid it and pretend it doesn't exist. The first way is to be consumed by it. This is what happens when our suffering takes the place of God. We focus it on it so much. We think about it. It shapes our lives. It fills our conversations. It's the thing that we talk about. Uh, you know, it's true that someone might have done great damage to us, that we have suffered some deep trauma, but this can become the theme tune of our lives. It can take the place of God as the thing that directs how we live our lives. Because the suffering is so great, it is the single thing that defines you as a person. That's the one way that humans often handle it. On the other hand, and I think this is far more common in our world, we just kind of pretend suffering doesn't exist. We don't want to think about it. We don't know how to help others when they suffer because we're just not used to it. And we live in a world that is so good and so comfortable and relatively so well provided for that we just don't have tools to, to suffer well. So we downplay it. We take the stiff upper lip. We downplay how difficult life really is. And so we pretend that things don't hurt as badly as they do. And we partially do this because we want to spare the other person who's talking to us from dealing with our suffering because we know as well as they do that they don't have the tools to deal with it. And so we just pretend that it doesn't exist. But that's not what is available to the Christian, to the believer. That's not actually how scripture deals with our suffering. Notice the way the psalmist deals with his suffering here, with his trial. He doesn't pretend it doesn't exist. It's very real. It's caused him great pain. He talks about people riding over his head as if he's being crushed by the weight of it. He talks about the pain of the searing fire, like drowning in water. He feels like he was caught in a trap. He was lured into a prison. He just doesn't pretend that suffering doesn't exist. He's very honest about that in talking to God. But nor does he let his suffering define him. He is not his suffering. In the middle of this episode, he calls on people to do what? To praise God. Because God has kept him alive. He approaches, actually, his suffering with thankfulness. 
He finds something for which to be thankful. Even if it is only that God has brought him through the suffering. Our, um, we started a professional faith class on Sunday, uh, Friday night. And we've been working through the Heidelberg Catechism. And actually, Catechism Laws Day 10, I think, um, talks about exactly this. It talks about what do we understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures. Okay? He rules over them so that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, fruit and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. God as a father here has sent the suffering for the psalmist. He has lured him into a trap. He has laid burdens on his back. He has got him through the fire and the water as a means of refining him. The prophet Isaiah processes it this way. He says in Isaiah 43 verse 2, When you pass through the waters, this is God speaking through the prophet, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you and the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched and the flame will not burn you. God may send the suffering to purify us. But he will walk us through it. When you, not if you, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you and the rivers will not overwhelm. When you walk through the fire, not if, you won't be scorched and the flame's not going to burn you. And now because the psalmist has walked through this fire and has come through this, uh, this, this uh, drowning, has walked through the, the burdens and the, and the suffering that God has placed on him, he says, this is his response, he says, Bless our God, you peoples, let the sound of his praise be heard, because he has brought me through. He recognises that God has tested him and that through this trial, even though it is by fire, he has been refined. He talks about how his trial has been like the refining fire of, uh, that purifies silver. He knows that this difficulty has changed him. And we see the same theme picked up again in the New Testament. In James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, uh, James tells us that we should consider it pure joy, brothers and sisters. Why? When? When we face all kinds of trials. Why? Because trials produce perseverance that strengthens our faith. Romans 8, 28 says it this way. We know that all things, all things, all things work together for the good of those who love God, who have been called according to his purpose. All things. We have a God that is bigger than what some in the Christian sphere believe. It is not just that God allows us to go through suffering. At least for the psalmist here, he has sent 
the suffering. And here's the takeaway truth. You and I can have joy in the midst of our suffering when we see God's hand in it. We can be thankful for it when we realize that all of our trials have a purpose. They have meaning. And that is something only the Christian can say. We are the only people on earth for whom suffering is not a punishment because we've upset God or some random occurrence just because we live in a pointless universe. We are the only people that can say God is sovereignly in control of our sufferings. That our trials that we go through, he sends and can use them to refine our faith and strengthen our lives. One commentator puts it this way. He says, Faith is not faith unless it has been tried and tested and purified like gold. Take heart, my friends. Your suffering is not pointless. It is not meaningless. You can have joy even while you are unhappy when you suffer, when you realize that God's hand is in it. And when you do that, you can say, Blessed be the name of my Lord. Let the nations praise God. That's the second thing. So we can have joy when we praise God for who he is. We can have joy in our suffering when we realize that God uses it for his own purposes. And finally, we can have joy when we reflect on God's faithfulness. From verse 16. Notice now he changes who he speaks to. He he was telling the nations to praise God. Now he says, come and listen, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth, and praise was on my tongue. If I had been aware of malice in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. However, God has listened. He's paid attention to the sound of my prayer. Blessed be God. He has not turned away my prayer or turned his faithful love from me. Now this final part of the psalm reminds us of God's faithfulness and love and about how when we reflect on this personally and and this forms our testimony, if you like, our lives can be filled with joy. Notice what the psalmist does here. He invites the people, he says, come and listen, you who fear God, and I'll tell you what God has done for me. And then he goes on to tell anyone who would listen that God has listened to his prayers, that he has ultimately been saved by God, that that God did not turn away his faithful love from the psalmist. And he tells people his testimony. And for him, he goes to this ultimate source of joy, that God has saved him. You see, friends, because we are human... The other two ways in which we live with joy can sometimes fail us. We can sometimes be so overwhelmed, be so deep in the depths, be so covered by the drowning under the weight of the burdens that God is sending to refine us that in fact it can feel like joy is too far away. Our joy, even when we reflect on God's character and his goodness and his hand in it, it just is not there. Sometimes our suffering can be so great that we can find it difficult to appreciate the truth that God is using it to refine us. 
And if we are not careful, we can think that God is harsh and callous and kind of a bit mean. I mean, how dare God send me so much pain just to purify me? So how do we protect our hearts from that sort of thinking? What is the antidote to all-consuming bitterness in our hearts? It is reflecting on what God has done in not keeping his faithful love from you. Now that phrase is faithful love. Whenever you see that in the Old Testament, it is is a specific kind of love. Uh, It is um, God's covenant love. It is really pointing ultimately to the fact that Jesus died on the cross. Okay, So whenever you read your Bible, you see that, that's what you should be thinking. Now he says here that despite his sin, despite his rebellion, despite the fact that he has no malice in his heart, as if he didn't, uh, God was still faithful to him. And that's true of us. Despite our sin, despite our rebellion, despite the fact that we hold on to these old hurts and old pains instead of laying them down at the foot of the cross, God is still faithful to us. He is faithful to us because Jesus came. And that is the deep spring of joy that ultimately fills up our joy buckets, if you like. We need to turn our thoughts again to what God has done for us, not just in saving us out of a circumstance or using a circumstance to refine us or just praising God for his other characteristics, but because Jesus died for us on the cross. If you want to take your next step in growing in joy, then you must realize that it is true, actually, that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Do you believe that? Because if you are a believer, then that is true for you always. And when that becomes the thing that guides your life, when it becomes the theme tune of your thoughts, when it becomes the inner dialogue that runs through your mind no matter what happens, do you know what happens to you? You become a person of joy. You are gracious when others wrong you because you know that God has been gracious to you in Christ Jesus. And when those small things that bother us so much happen, we let them pass as less important because we know what's important, Jesus on the cross and what that means for us. And when we reflect daily on who Jesus is in our lives and that he died for us and who we are as a result, do you know what happens when people hurt us and disappoint us? they start again looking like our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we know that we're no better than them and that there but for the grace of God go I. And when we think about how we have been forgiven of our sins because of what Jesus has done on the cross, the forgiveness that we thought we would never be able to give someone else because of how deeply they've offended us or hurt us, that becomes possible again. Because we start to see that actually we are far worse off as people 
than we dared hope to think. But that God has loved us far more than we dared hope to believe. And the more central Christ is to who you are, the more Jesus you can be to others. And the more Jesus you are to others, the more you will consider God's great character and praise him for it in joy. And the more you are like Jesus, the more joy you will have in the middle of your suffering. And the more like Jesus you are, the more joy you can share with those around you. And this is a process that we can grow in. It is a process that Christians have discovered again and again all throughout the ages. And so I want to leave you with a a short little poem. It's actually lyrics of a song written by a pretty famous pastor who lived in the 1600s. His name was Richard Baxter. And he writes about how he matures in his own joy as he follows Jesus, as he takes these steps to grow in his joy, focusing on what Christ has done for him. And the song is called A Joyful Song of Christ's Abiding Presence. And it's quite short. He said, Lord, what is life to me if it were not for thee? If I should lose my faith in thee, what could my life but sadness be? But with thy presence near, my path is bright and clear, and I am filled with joy and hope and love, and peace descends from heaven above. And if I should lose my faith in thee, what could my life but sadness be? He has discovered again that his faith in Jesus on the cross is the thing that gives him joy. And if his life were determined by anything else, it would be but a sad affair. So where will you find your joy? Find it in Christ and what he's done for you. Let's pray. Lord, as we reflect on all you have done for us in Christ Jesus, in saving us, in uh, choosing us before the creation of the world and then doing everything that was necessary to bring us into the fold, we pray and thank you for that. May that spark eternal joy within us. As we reflect on what Jesus has done for us, help us to let go of the hurts and the pains and the implications of our suffering so that even in the midst of these things, we can, we can uh, tell people to praise you because you have brought us through. May this be the guiding force in our life. May it be the internal dialogue that dominates our thoughts. May it be the, the thing that defines us as people, that we are Christians who believe that Jesus lived and died on the cross for us. And may this so impact our lives that we be forever joyful. And perhaps, Lord, some of us here are struggling because we, uh, we find it difficult to make that the centre of our lives. Maybe we've never considered uh, what that might mean for us. So I'm going to just pray for those people right now through your Holy Spirit. Lord, may you right now uh, change their hearts that they too can come to know the eternal joy 
of knowing Jesus and living for him. I pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.